right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sex Sales Podcast, the podcast where we talk about culture, relationships, dating, and the world at large from a male and a female perspective. Today, we're going to be talking about the gendered political divide. So this seems to be a far more uh, significant trend in America, but as is usually the case in Australia, we tend to follow their cultural trends just 10, 20, 30 years later. And there's a huge political, there was a sort of bifurcation over the last 20, 30 years. I mean, the America as a society is so divided politically anyway, but you can draw that same division um, across the genders. There are a lot of men who are leaning right, but actually trending more conservative. And then there are women who tend to be leaning more left or liberal uh, and are trending more progressive slash liberal. And so uh, if there's anyone who does political science, I will use some of these terms loosely and interchangeably. I will probably outline them specifically soon, but the general gist of this podcast is just what are the implications and or ramifications and potential causes of the continued gender split in politics? And how does that affect dating? How does that affect relationships? So this could be, a, this could be an interesting one for sure. Um, before we get into it, uh, as always, come see a show. They're a lot funnier than what we're probably going to talk about. Uh, you can come see my solo show, neilkohacker.com slash tickets. I'm doing all the major cities in Australia. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, come to a Comedy Untamed show, and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, etc. How are you doing, Eliza? Are you good? I am good. Same old. How are you? Anything exciting? Ah, oh, same old, same old. Yeah. Nothing too just exciting. I'm trying to think. Working on the show. Yeah, just trying to be funny, trying to stay funny. <laughs> Not very funny on this podcast, am I? You are. You are. Hey, actually, no, I don't want to be how... though. That's... Yeah, you. Yeah, that's not. That's not your your purpose. Well, you can be at times, but um, you know how you were talking about. I don't know if you were talking about this with me off camera, or on camera, or on a podcast. What we were talking once about people that do like corporate comedy, like, yeah. um, getting comedians into. Someone was telling me that um, I, on the weekend I met a girl and she was saying that she went to like a conference recently and it was for mental health and they got like a um, – and it was all like mental health practitioners and they had a comedian come on um, to kind of be an icebreaker and it was this huge conference but she was like talking about um, like really – violent or uh, abrupt and <laughs> confronting self-deprecating jokes about her mental health or having BPD or wanting to kill whoever or whatever or herself or something like that. I think and, I know who you're talking um, about. <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> well, I don't know who it is. So I couldn't confirm. But, um, yeah, and the person who was telling me about it was like because they were all like health professionals no one knew how to like inter like react. Like, do they laugh at this? Because they all deal with these clients on a day to day basis and it's really serious and they're all like really empathetic. Or it was just like a really awkward, <laughs> bordering on awkward. And then someone came out afterwards and like the host or whatever and was like, Yeah, she she came on because the purpose was to make you feel uncomfortable. And they were all like, was it though? Because she's a comedian doing a oh, comedy show. Yeah, there's, a, there's a really like, awkward uh, and weird trend in comedy and art in general where uh, they'll say things like, oh, we, we, you know, we subvert the audience's expectations of what a comedian should be or what an artist should be. And that's just intellectual code word for saying that they're not funny. <laughs> And then there's also this trend of comedians evangelizing about their mental health to a room of strangers and it's clearly yeah. some form of therapy for them and a lot of strangers, yeah. some of them relate yeah. and some of them find it funny. A lot are like, uh, you need help yeah. and it's really common and I'm not a fan but look, yeah. expression is expression and some people like it. But so yeah. common the, uh, all over social media. Uh, so, guys, I have depression. 
Yeah. And then pause for laughs. No one laughs. <laughs> pause. And now I'm more depressed. <laughs> Come on, that's actually funny. <laughs> well, yeah, I came up with it just then. <laughs> or the other one is, yeah, they'll talk about suicide attempts and they'll do it in oh, a very yeah. conversational way. It's yeah. some sort of form of um, must be just a way that they can feel comfortable about it by talking to a bunch yeah. of strangers about it who laugh and therefore validate their experiences and by extension their themselves and thus it's a sort of pseudo-therapy for them but... Yeah, it's a weird thing because you can't – when people are talking about things like that, you can't exa- – it becomes hard to criticize them like with that Little Mermaid thing if she's saying, oh, it's because of my race. Well, what do you do? You're stuck then. You have to risk yeah. being accused yeah. of racism and in the same vein, yeah. you have to risk being accused of, you know, not creating an inclusive space for people who are neurodivergent or have ADHD or mm. autism or you name it. And I feel like I felt bad for the comedian when I heard this because it's like it may not have been that her content wasn't funny. It might have just been that they're there talking about really serious research and developments in this field, et cetera, and then, you know, you're not in the mood to laugh. Like you're not – you're not going in being all joyous and upbeat and happy. Like the rapport with the the audience isn't there. You know, like I'm sure that's a really big – Thing. Like you would probably be able to speak to that more like when who who you're communicating to and joking with. It, it's going to be easier if people are ready to sit and laugh like when you're going to a comedian show than when you're with coworkers that don't or colleagues that aren't expecting a humorous day or whatever and then a comedian comes out and tries to crack jokes and they're all like, mm, can we laugh at this? Or yeah, what? <laughs> sometimes the organisers don't really know what they're doing and they put a comedian yeah. where they're not supposed to be but look the comedian does it because it's usually really good pay and most yeah. corporate gigs are like that they're in some awkward space yeah. between a thank you speech and a tearful goodbye to someone oh now let's have a comedian yeah. let's do that that makes perfect sense yeah. oh the mic's not working okay yeah. oh yeah you're a comedian you'll be fine just yell oh there's no stage okay you'll uh-huh. be fine just talk to people that oh, they're always it's so poorly organized as well. Um, yeah, I, I know people who've gone and they just don't have a mic and they're like, Oh, I thought you'd just be funny, man. Oh. No, need a oh. microphone. That's so bad. Most comedians have a story about a corporate gig that they end up putting in their routine. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I have a few funny ones. <laughs> I don't think I've done a really terrible one. Oh, actually, recently I did one where. Um, it was like a rugby club. So there's a lot of Pacific Islanders. And then I asked the guy before, like, yeah, I can say anything, right? And so I have these jokes. They're not like making fun of Christians, but there's just a joke I do about, oh, it should be like if Jesus was Australian and, and, you know, I just sort of Mm -hmm. follow that through line. And yeah, yeah, I didn't realize, you know, Pacific Islanders are often very Christian and they're all massive rugby players that weren't laughing much. (laughs) So I was, uh, I went out (laughs) the back way. (laughs) <laughs> oh no but um and then once i did a gig at this indian festival and then i just made fun of other indian groups <laughs> and they hated that oh no didn't want to book oh. me again when i was 15 i did a talent show because i'd won this national competition this was probably to this day still the worst gig i've ever done oh. i was 15 did a talent show they're like yeah yeah you do your stand-up and there's, it was this uh, performing arts center next to a church, smack bang in the middle of Sydney's North Shore. This was all very affluent people. And a lot of people from the church came over. So there's these older affluent churchgoers who come to see this talent show. And then there's all these little four-year-olds playing the flute. And then they put me on. And I thought, all right, next to a church, I'll do some church jokes. And... Uh, there was one person, my friend up the back was cackling. Everyone else was dead silent and the host had to apologize after I was done saying, oh, oh guys, no. he's usually really funny. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> sorry if you were offended. And, yeah, oh. um, I was uh, 
definitely oh. a you, you know unique experience that one. That would have been traumatizing. It's usually funny. Uh, you, you, Sorry you if you're offended. Give oh, yourself a narrative shit. of oh no, they're just dumb, <laughs> and I'm great. So that's yeah, a way are. to cope with. <laughs> but um, I guess speaking of uh, yeah, religion um, and mental health, you know, there was a trend that this this is tangential to what we'll end up talking about. That I I cannot verify this because I saw it on Twitter, but I trust the person who posted it. Mm-hmm. And there was a graph showing women under the age of thirty four, or it was young women. In America, and they they compared women who were liberal. So when I say liberal, liberal in America now sort of means, I guess, progressive. Doesn't necessarily mean, mm-hmm. cla- you know, classically liberal, which was more about individualism and freedom. Mm-hmm. But you know, le- left wing, mm-hmm. if you want to say that. And then and then women who were conservative, and they showed that the me- the mental health concerns of women who were liberal was something like more than 50% had some sort of mental health issue and that had that had yeah. increased dramatically over the last decade or so whereas for conservative women it had been a very slight uptick but it was way lower now i don't know if this was self reported again i cannot verify the, the it was a graph but it was posted by someone who i do trust and it, it relates to my personal experience, I would guess something like that would yeah. be true. But there would also maybe be more diagnosis in people who were more likely to seek out help or something like that. But mm. I found that really interesting that there's just an abundance of mental health issues in people who are left-leaning politically and there's a few theories as to why that may be. It could be because the that side of politics is deeply concerned about existential issues like climate change mm. or deforestation. Well, you know, just yeah. like sort of larger issues that create a lot of personal dread when you as an individual have minimal control over these. It also could be that people who have a temperament that's more susceptible to mental health issues are more attracted to left-wing ideals and that could be because, you know, they're, they're more likely to be creative, to be on the sensitive side, to be mm. culturally liberal. And people who are creative and artistic generally are more neurotic and don't often have a consistent sense of self and are often more susceptible to mental health issues. And I can attest to that being in the comedy and arts industry, mm. everyone has a mental health issue in fact i think i'm an anomaly for not having one um <laughs> and, or it could be that there's something that the conservative political ethos has that is ameliorating a lot of the mental health concerns for younger yeah. women and this was specifically for women i didn't see a graph for men um, my guess would be there would also still be a gap but maybe not as pronounced um and then that leads into maybe some of the other things I want to talk about on this podcast, which is that there are now dating apps specifically in America where you you, you are just dating people who agree with your politics. You do not you want to filter yeah. out people who might be yeah. right wing or left wing because you don't people don't want to date them. And the big red flag for a lot of people can be someone who are uh, they just have political opinions that I disagree with. And, you know, when I say political opinions, um, that's a broad brush. That's a, a broad conception of some ideas that could be deeply philosophical and intrinsic to what we believe is righteous and, and just. Some would say they are political differences or ideological differences. It's obviously very complex, but the basic gist is that these political requirements in dating seem to be increasing um, compared to, say, our parents' generation when, in theory, you would think they had more to be worried about politically from someone. So particularly maybe our grandparents' generation, say if you were dating in the 1960s where some people were hippies, free love, uh, bra-burning, second-wave feminist, smoke weed, don't go to Vietnam – 
compared to some people who are still deeply religious and Catholic and or Protestant saying, you know, being gay is a sin and, you know, you name it, whatever uh, stock standard conservative values would have been at the time, um, I haven't seen any data, but I don't know if there was as much of a dating divide in 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 those days for any baby boomers listening maybe they can yeah uh, let yeah. us know but it'd it, be it, interesting to know if people were more aligned as well just uh, as a general population were they more aligned politically than they are now it seems to be i agree like very polarizing um and sometimes it's it's funny because i find like when we talk about these things, sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, and I almost forget about it because my social media pages is such an echo chamber for my own political views that I forget sometimes that people feel differently almost. Like I, every time I go onto Facebook, which is so much more boomer, um, you know, and I see a, an article about like I, I follow a girl on TikTok who I really love and she's just she doesn't shave her armpits and she's a little bit plus size, like a little bit fat. <laughs> she calls herself fat. It's not offensive. And she was, um, I think she was a model for a, maybe bonds or some underwear thing. And I love her. And she came across my Facebook and I was like, Oh, cool. Her photos on, on Facebook. That's great for her. And all the people in the comments were like, this is abhorrent. I'm no longer buying from you. Get this off my page. This is disgusting, like thousands and thousands of negative comments. And then I went onto her TikTok and saw the same, like it was a video, but in the same outfit, which was like, it was like pajama shorts that were really short and a little bralette. And everyone was like, you're inspiring. You're so gorgeous. You're stunning. Like it was so fascinating difference. But isn't and it- even like when I um, yeah. Oh, well, I was just going to say, isn't it interesting that when, you know, we're talking about politics and you and you go to a situation like that when that shouldn't shouldn't really be political, should it? It should just, that's just an opinion about, all right, is yeah. this person attractive or not? But everything has become so politicized that that is now yeah. a political yeah. opinion and it determines what tribe yeah. you are in whether you think uh, a plus size woman with armpit, armpit hair is attractive or not, when it, that shouldn't be political. Yeah, That's just a, a matter of opinion. You scroll down, and then the next article is about a transgender person, <laughs> and then it's the same thing. All these old people are like, they're not actually a male, they're clearly a female pretending to be a man because they've got deep psychological trauma, blah, blah, blah. And then on TikTok, everyone's like, let them just be who the fuck they want to be. That's. That is a man. They may have been born with female genitalia, but it's a man. They identify as a man. Let him be a man. Um, so it's like so crazy. And even those videos um, where it's only like I've been seeing more about young people having those polarizing views um, where they go through universities and they say in America and they're like, are you a feminist? And I just assume that all these young men that they were asking in universities saying, are you a feminist? And obviously it's edited to show maybe they cut people out, but so many were like, no, (laughs) I'm not a feminist. No, like, no, why would I do that? And that's absolutely not. And the way they're saying no or absolutely not makes me think that they do understand what the meaning of feminism is, but they're still so against it. And I was like, whoa, like I'm surprised at how many people we're saying that I thought that would be like the uncommon, very rare answer, hard to get in a day, but it would seem to be very easy. So, well, what <laughs> what has happened, like you say, when people have been in their social media echo chamber, is that certain words probably mean different things to different people. So, mm. for if I'm to just guess, people maybe in the you know your social media on on TikTok on progressive sort of circles would assume feminism is a given it's not even a political issue it's just a basic fundamental human rights of equality for women yeah. and yeah for people on the on the right they might think feminism has become morphed into something else and we're being gaslit 
being yeah. told that it's just about equality when it's actually a completely anti-scientific creed where, you know, yeah. it doesn't take into account biology and it has a narrative about wanting to, you know, take over and sort of belittle men or something like that. I mean, those, those are two yeah. very broad assumptions, but I guess it, it doesn't necessarily mean you would come any closer to agreeing with someone, but if you take into account the different ideas people have about those words, it can be a way to feel less separate to them. So another thing could be, you know, racism, right? So that is a word that means different things to different people based on which ideas and ideology you're attaching it to. Mm, so true. for in progressive circles, racism constitutes a holistic system that manifests in unequal outcomes between different groups. So if you are upholding that system, i.e. not doing anything to break it down and overturn it, then you are perpetuating racism. Hence the uh, accusation of racism for people who might just disagree with something or might not think a piece of black literature or art is particularly good because they're then according to them, upholding a system that is maintaining oppression against a, a socially constructed idea of race. But then on the right side, it might be the traditional definition of racism, which was the norm up until very recently, which is prejudice against a different ethnicity. And so when someone might say, hey, that's not racist or that is racist, they're actually arguing from completely different definitions and that's why all these debates all these sort of discussions that are supposed to bring us closer together that I watch online they don't they don't bring us closer together because then they they're arguing based on fundamentally different principles and ideas and you can't have a discussion if you're if you have if you can't have a discussion about something like racism or or feminism if you have different ideas of what the word itself means and I think that's clearly had spill off into the world of dating. Um, I know anecdotally a lot of people who, in the arts world, I'd say, who, you know, wouldn't even dream of dating someone who has a certain set of political or cultural ideas, but then vice versa. I know some people who usually are ethnic and from Western Sydney that wouldn't want to date other people who have those sets of ideas. And, you know, I, I wouldn't try to say that's wrong or that's uh, unfair. Everyone is entitled to their own dating choices, of course. But I wonder how much of this has been manufactured from a social media algorithm that is designed to outrage us and make us think that people are far more different and villainous to potentially what they actually are yeah it's it is difficult because they pro there probably is a really big aspect of it but I also am someone that you know from my own personal dating experience then decided that I do want to have someone that I align with politically um, and not that my a previous partner had these views himself he did a little bit but I remember when I met um his family, and I think I talked about this before, but I told them I worked in child protection and his mum came up to me one day and she was really upset and was saying she was going to call me at work to come and intervene because thinking I could just go there. <laughs> um, but because a someone brought their child into where she worked um, and he was wearing like a frozen dress and he was like three years old. And she was like, it was just so wrong. Like he, she put a boy in this dress and I was like, oh, I, I couldn't hold myself back. I was like, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> like we got into it. But I was like this, it really, really got under my skin, like massively, massively under my skin. And then another point when I met the rest of his family and there was like 30 of us and they asked me like, do you want children? And of course they asked me that like first question and I said, yes, I'd love to have children, but it's also really important for me to one day 
be a foster mom um, and foster children as well. And every single person at the table went dead silent, like completely silent. Not one person responded. Like you could hear the clink of someone's fork just hit their plate and no one said anything until I got up and went to the bathroom like two minutes later because I was like, I can't handle this. And they were so upset and then my boyfriend at the time was telling me like you shouldn't have said that like that was really upsetting to my family and I was like to talk about fostering children like are you fucking serious and that to me was like one of those moments where I was like I need to align with at least have someone that will back me or align with me but not that that's so like political and it could be more cultural or whatever but still like yeah boat. but um the, it was politics yeah, sort of has become pretty culture. crazy <laughs> That is crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, uh, that's that, a good point. Yeah, yeah. That one is a very interesting one because, yeah, if there's a fundamental misaligning of your values, uh, then you probably can't sustain a relationship. Yeah. But then that's what has happened. There are fundamental misaligning of values amongst everyone now. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's yeah. interesting how people uh, some not always, but can can. So on a date, they might hear a certain phrase or a sentence and it becomes a heuristic that that determines everything about that other person. So, you know, maybe these guys who watch these uh, red pill podcasts where there's the two guys and seven women and they're always just telling them that they're fours, uh, you know, if they're on a date with someone and the girl says something like, something that could be construed as, you know, quote-unquote woke or progressive, they'd immediately dismiss her entirely and say, no, can't date someone who's a super woke feminist or something like that. Um, yeah. When you don't know yeah. her full opinions, you don't know the nuances she yeah. may hold and, you know, what she actually wants and things. And similarly, uh, if a guy might say something like, oh, you know, you can't, I don't know, could say something that you can't say anything anymore or something like that on a date or just make a joke and yeah. then that's a huge red flag and it becomes a heuristic that determines exactly what this person thinks and who he is and whether he's a good or bad person. And, you know, we we have to do that on dates because we have to make a judgment on someone based on sometimes only an hour of interaction and, and you have to make certain assumptions about them, but... I wonder how many yeah. relationships could have been and could have been healthy had it not been for social media. Uh, and at the same time, yes, how many relationships wouldn't have, wouldn't have come about. I think this has been such a transformative mm. technology to our mm. dating lives but just our cultural, ethical, philosophical lives. It's, um, it's been... Um, hmm. Been really, it's been really interesting, and I think when you're in those social media echo chambers, and look, I do, I do this. We, I think we all kind of do this. We we tend to be exposed to the worst version of other ideas. So, you know, you're very rarely exposed to the video of someone who might have always been predominantly on the left or progressive but has now got one slightly different opinion on one issue and it's very nuanced and in- intelligent. Yeah. Neither are you exposed to the, you know, like what you were saying in the last podcast, the the woman who would classify themselves as a feminist but also would want to have children and want to, you know, be a mom and things like that. You're instead exposed to the most extreme versions of either side, which is the the guy who wants or wants to have multiple wives or you know thinks women shouldn't work or whatever yeah. and then the woman who shapes her head and you know wants to kill all men and that kind of thing <laughs> and yeah. neither of those what people are, you- are real like they they exist but they're very small slivers of the population i don't think they are a substantial group i think they gain a lot of traction online because they're so outrageous and it appeals to people's mm-hmm. sense of self yeah. and their narrative that like, oh, look, the other side is so crazy. I'm normal when, yeah. no, that's just a crazy person. <laughs> sure. What, on a larger scale, what are your thoughts on this? I saw, you know how there's a big thing in Japan at the moment because the birth rates are so extremely low. Um, women are choosing not to have 
babies for a multitude of reasons. And one of the big reasons is that I hear is amongst many is they're also making a stand against the way that Japanese men treat their partners. Um, and I saw this video that went viral that say, is saying that with everything going on around the world where people are trying to control women's birth control, their right to abortions, the you know laws around birth, et cetera, um, with everything going on, it's because men are starting to catch on that women control the population because women can decide when they have babies and it's becoming an issue on a political level with all these laws being made in place, but also on a psychological level for men where it's like they have to compete now with, of course, they've always had to compete with men, but in a different way where their hypermasculinity is no longer the attractive quality in order to bear children uh, it, or even the money. It's who's stable, who's emotionally present, who is fair, calm, consistent, compassionate, etc. where those hyper-masculine men are no longer finding women to have babies with them or not even hyper-masculine, but, but yeah, just aggressive or um, not that type of uh, parent. And so they're coming up in arms and then they're um, joining or advocating for political views and parties that inhibit women from making choices about their own bodies and reproductive health, et cetera. So then it's bringing men to that movement and women from that movement into the other side. And then, yeah, like the point is it then further polarizes men and women, especially for certain type of men. Um, But, also, mm. most women, not not most, I would say slightly more, the majority of women would be more when it comes to the reproductive rights. A lot of them are, you know, more progressive when they're young. But I do see, like, all over the internet, um, so many older women above or women above the age of 40 advocating for, yeah, remove the pill, remove abortion, have not be allowed to divorce your husband. And it's really fascinating to me that these women are advocating for that as well. So it's pretty interesting and shocking. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot there. The first thing I want to say is that there does seem to be this narrative that I'm sure has some definite truth to it that throughout the 20th century or historically it was just these brutish, aggressive men that – seem to get partners and both the guys on those kind of podcasts and maybe some on the progressive side think that. But when you, I mean, again, anecdotal, but if I talk to my grandfathers, for example, if I look at some of the letters and stories that were written in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, sure, they had very different ideas about marriage, but they weren't what you could describe as maybe, yeah, hyper-masculine or something like that. In fact, some, I, I guess to steel man the, the the culturally right-wing argument, it would be that, okay, it wasn't, it was like positive masculinity, but it wasn't guys, they would, they would, yeah, they would go to war and fight for their country, but they weren't out coward punching people on the street or like doing steroids and getting sleeve yeah. tats and calling girls sluts they were actually extremely well they're in the jail they actually used to bash um and again this is just one little story they used to bash any man who was in there that was any kind of crime against a woman he was ostracized bashed totally seen as lesser than Mm. actual murderers and now they don't do that but uh, that's just one little story Mm. there but i yeah i mean i'm not trying to say that uh, it was some kind of progressive, sensitive yeah. male utopia yeah. back then either. Um, but I, we don't. I don't know if we fully know what it was like in the hundred years ago, even. Yeah, because those things are all true. Like the the expression of masculinity was different, and in some ways, could be people would say that was better. That's the way it should be you know, the physical, the physicality of it, et cetera. But also then you think, well, those men were also much more likely to physically, physically abuse their women um, or their, all their families. And they were also much less likely to be 
present um, in their families. I read a study um, saying that millennial men are three times more present in their children's life than any other generation before them, which is pretty amazing when you think about that, like three times more present, um, which is great and the impact that that will have on their um, children. And I was talking about this with Adrian yesterday when as when we were looking at those kids in the playground where the, um, that guy was ignoring his child being a brat and he was on his phone the whole time for like an hour, did not even look up once to look at his kid. In fact, when we were leaving, he had lost the kid because <laughs> he just wasn't looking at him, just completely ignoring him, wasn't paying any attention. And then this other dad came in with a kid similar age, a bit older, and um, the dad was so gentle, so sweet, so calm, and this kid was just so beautiful. And the dad watched him the whole time. If he was being rough, he'd be like, hey, buddy, gentle hands, that's a baby, like really sweet, really present. And I was like, God, this guy is raising such a good kid. And it's so interesting because when the first dad pulled up the um, the child eventually, the one time he said something to the kid, um, the bratty kid, he was, I didn't know what he was saying because he was speaking in French and the child was responding in English and the child was saying, I am the eldest here. These babies are so annoying. They need to respect their elder. And he was so like stern talking about it. I'm like, where is this kid learning this language? He was so like boisterous and rude and aggressive. And I was, Adrian and I were saying that kid is definitely a bully at his school. But the impact, I was saying like the impact of a child that has his father's attention versus the child that didn't was so interesting to just observe in real time. It's kids the same age and their dad's right there and how they interacted and then those children's personality. I'm not saying that kid was a dickhead just because of his dad. Maybe he has trauma, blah, blah, blah. But that was my armchair psychology <laughs> analysis from viewing that snapshot of 40 minutes of that interaction. But I thought it was really, really interesting so totally this is nothing to do with um political views or anything but i think that the way that men were present then versus now is vastly different um for the better but the political views in interestingly have gone more polarizing more opposite more further away more um Mm. like dangerous at times on either side, whether you're super progressive or super, super conservative, both of them are dangerous in their own means. So yeah, um, yeah, it's so fascinating. So that um, I, that's an interesting study that, that uh, millennial dads spend on average three times more time because yeah. I guess the narrative that you'd see on some of the in some of the right-wing social media circles would be that fathers used to invest in their children's time more. They used to teach them skills. They used to, uh, you know, teach them how to maybe, if they're American, teach them how to hunt, teach them valuable life skills. And something that maybe, again, I'm putting words in people's mouths here that conservative women might say is that they taught their sons how to respect women, how to, you know, court them appropriately um, instead of just, oh, you up on Snapchat or something like that. So the narrative from the right seems to be yeah. that, okay, today everyone just wants to have casual sex and there's nothing deeper and meaningful and historically that that came about, but that came about from a moral code that sort of not rigidly forced, but, uh, you know, molded people towards that kind of way of living and then the narrative from the other side is is okay it was male power and it was just rules based that just forced um people women to live a certain way and were not allowed to uh you know pursue their interests and their career and a lot of that is completely true uh i think some of those i don't know what you might have seen but there's this one What's her name? Louise Perry, I think, and she's gained a bit of traction in some of the circles I operate in. So I'd, I don't know, maybe centrist or something like that. I don't know, whatever you'd call me. But she mm. is someone, I think she's about your age. She might be, no, she might be sort of early 30s and she grew up quite 
you know, liberal, progressive, not not necessarily like super progressive, but, you know, in a cosmopolitan area of London. And she's actually uh, written a book about how things like the pill have actually had a detrimental effect and things like sex positivity are actually hurting a lot of women because it's forcing women to uh, have sex like men and to sort of meet the male standards of what they want from a sexual partner, which is like really casual encounters and no investment and her argument. No, sorry, she doesn't actually want to get rid of the pill, but her Gen, the gist of her argument, she's very good. I would recommend people watch and listen to her talks on, on YouTube. But And, you know, there's, there's some things I find interesting, whether or not, um, you know, not like a complete endorsement of everything she, she says. Uh, but mm. she's essentially saying that like this kind of sexually liberated world has actually hurt women and some of the mental health issues that younger women are facing are because of that, because they're getting ghosted That's by multiple so guys and they're only being able to find these fuck boys who don't want to have a commitment and her thing is that all right if you kind of have these values of like all right you can only have sex in marriage it forces men to reach a certain standard where they have to be a certain level of um you know have emotional uh intelligence but also you know financial uh capability and just sort of competence in multiple domains for them to get that intimacy um and so she she has a very interesting argument um and recommended people might not uh be you know used to hearing something like that she's she's really interesting um Coming back to the Japan. Yeah, I'm reading it about her right now, though. It's, oh, it's, yeah? It says here that um, to be anything other than sex positive is to be at best a killjoy and at worst someone who harbors deep internalized shame where women must remain internally silent about certain behaviors. They must celebrate kinks. They must enjoy porn. They must consider sex work a valid choice. Um, even as they say they disapprove of clothing sweatshops and above all they must fuck like a man and celebrating this hard and are celebrating this as hard won equality and never ever texting back after. That's so that's so true. It's like, well, to be sex positive, if you want to claim yourself as sex positive, which is what so many women want to do now, it's not so much about accessing the pill or having edu- or educating our children young about what safe sex is. It's about being sh- making sure that you enjoy hard BDSM and porn so and fucking like a porn star <laughs> is basically the nutshell of that. That's really like a – and what is interesting as well is it said that she works – she has done workshops on like um, – sex education and she worked in rape crisis um with victims so that's yeah really interesting I have to read that very, yeah she's got a book out there um mm. the case against the sexual revolution so it's a provocative time i haven't actually read the book um, yeah. heard good things the greater political ramifications like you were talking about in japan are both uh depressing but interesting because there specifically, in a lot of East Asia, they still seem to expect a certain traditional form of courtship and marriage, but they are maybe not living up to that same masculine standard. I'm talking about the men here. And simultaneously, the world clearly has changed a lot. Uh, there's a there's a huge uh, birth gap. And so because Japan doesn't have a huge amount of immigration, they, their population is decreasing. Now, it's, 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 a, it's a, almost a deeply ironic issue where um, the women are making pretty rational choices if all the men are weebs who sit there and watch hentai all day and can't actually uh, meet a certain standard that they deem to be worthy of being a husband or a father for their children. Yet if a mass amount of women are not having children – sorry, a mass amount of couples are not having children, 
then the 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 economy actually faces collapse in 20 to 30 years because there are a growing amount of older people who rely on social welfare and there isn't enough of a tax base to match that as the worker pool dwindles the infrastructure doesn't match the uh, dwindling pool of workers and throughout history when there's been population decline like that it usually hasn't been good for standard of living and for the internal um, culture and and policies of the country. So it's one of those things almost like climate change, right, where like you should without a doubt be able to make individual choices. But then if a plurality of people are making an individual choice to not have children and the country doesn't have immigrants, then by the time you might be middle-aged or in your old age, you may bear the consequences of a dwindling population and of a population that is skewing old. And then if people are also having just one or two children um, and then let's say healthcare is no longer on the table, then they have to make choices to look after their parents. And I was re- I did a deep dive on this. There's a really interesting documentary called Birth Gap and – that is talking about how since the 70s, a lot of industrialized um, first world countries have had below replacement fertility rates. And certain countries like Japan, South Korea, Italy, and Germany, Russia, they're really ahead on that. So their population curve is huge among the 50 to 60-year-old demographic. Um, Mm. But as they move into retirement, then they're going to have to face some issues and more often than not that then starts to affect the people who are young. There's massive youth unemployment in a lot of those countries. So there are these macro concerns. uh, But then, you know, no one knows what to do because you can't really have a – not in these countries, not yet. You can't exactly have a government that's like, yeah, you you know, handmaiden's tale, you have to have children or something. Um, So – Usually what they do is just increase immigration and that has its uh, consequences as well. Uh, You then are bringing people who might have very different cultural ideas and then that also usually immigrants are more culturally and politically conservative and so all of these countries tend to be trending towards a conservative kind of outcome just because the conservative or right-wing religious types are the ones who tend to have more children and usually that is passed on it doesn't it's not always because you know if you look at the 20th century there was a mass secularization of people who would have had very religious great-grandparents and then were no longer religious and you know religion doesn't always uh imply what politics you might have uh but you know culturally if um if say you know, they, they did some graphs in America, right, where like Republicans tend to have more, uh, on average, I think it was 2.5 children and, and Democrats have like 1.4 or something. I think if I read, remember that right. correctly. And That's so it. then they they played that out over the, and look, it, it likely won't just trend perfectly over the course of the next few decades, but they said that like the population of, you know, re- more what could be described as conservative communities would triple or quadruple and the you know more progressive population would end up dwindling and as a result then because it's a democracy they would end up winning elections so in israel that's already happening the ultra orthodox jews have an average of five to six kids each and they've done that for the last few decades and they are now 10 to 15 percent of the population and they're projected to become 30 to 40 percent of the population sometime this century wow um so uh the uh not the mormons the um amish in america so the the people who live in those kind of communities in as though it's still the 1800s they also have an average of six kids and they did a projection where if that birth rate continued and the rest of america's birth rate continued to decline at the same rate some it was something something like the year twenty one fifty or something. There'd be more Amish than um, non Amish in the country. Now that That's obviously is so like taking into yeah. account a lot of things. That means like they'd continue that birthright. That means no one would change. You know, and that does tend to happen. But 
Yeah, there's a that sort is a of, really interesting. I'd never th- even considered like realized that before. Obviously, when you say it, I'm like, well, that makes sense. But God, I hadn't even made that connection. That's that is fascinating. It's like as much as you people say, you know, religion is dying out and there's more atheists or whatever. Well, who's who's having the babies? Who's creating the next population? And I mean, assuming that they will also be religious. That's but, a big, yeah. yeah. But because we're polarised, they probably will be. If we weren't as polarised, there'd be a lot yeah. more secularization. I think. There'd be a lot of religious people transitioning into atheism, as there was throughout the 20th century. But I think because it's so polarised right now, you know, the religious communities, and again, anecdotal, but I know certain people who uh, they're Protestant, well, they're, I don't know, they say they're non-denominational. I don't know the particular sect of Christianity, but they have now suddenly, you know, they've over the course of knowing them over the maybe four, five, six years, they were, you know, hard and fast Greens voters and have now, I don't know who they'd vote for now because in Australia it's not like there's a Republican Party, uh, but they've really shifted. They've shifted because they don't – they feel like they're not allowed to teach their kids what they want to teach their kids, that there are certain things that are creeping into Australian schools that they're not comfortable with their kids learning. Um, and so they might want to homeschool or they specifically look for religious schools and it's just this continued divide in society that America is far ahead of us and I, Australia might not go down that road. Who knows? Um, because we just don't have the same – like the Ameri- the foundations of America were very religious and it's not really the same in Australia. So I don't think this would happen as profoundly in Australia, but the trend in most um, industrialised first world countries is continued political and cultural polarisation and to the point where it, it, it's getting really hard to almost you can live in unison. You can have neighbours that completely disagree with you and everything. But then when it comes to schools, what is taught there? When it comes to uh, laws about what is ethical, what is moral, what what we should be doing, it's it's becoming untenable to live in a, in a society with people who have just completely fundamentally different ideas to each other about what should be yeah. culturally appropriate. I was reading on um, Reddit the other day that someone was saying in their child's school in Florida that it is literally against the law, it is illegal to refer to a student via their nickname. So if your name is, if you're born Charles and your nickname is Charlie, no, (laughs) he has to be referred to as Charles. And so people were saying like, why the fuck is that a thing? And and then Americans are applying, being like, this is all over Florida, and it's so that people have to can't refer to like trans kids with their new name, um, of their new of the new gender. They have to be referred to via their um, birth name, therefore not validating that they are trans. Um, and it's like that's literally the reason this law was put into place. Okay. Yeah, it's swinging. To Reddit. It's 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 become so polarized that it either goes yeah. one way uh, or goes one other way and it, it's becoming harder and harder to reach any kind of middle yeah. ground or, you know, the school thing, I'm not a politician or something, but it seems like, all right, just have the ability for some parents to take their kids out of certain classes if they really want and then, yeah. that's you know, that, that seems like the best viable option but yeah the um guy in florida has gone really hard on um his agenda to the point where he actually lost a lot of people who might have otherwise supported him because they thought the other side was extreme but now it seems like he's going um too extreme the other way and that seems to be what is happening so in south korea they elected a I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but they elected someone who was saying they wanted to abolish the 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 gender department and and all these bureaucracies related to um, 
you know, w- women specifically. And then in, in, um, it's not Hungary. Yes, it is Hungary. So Hungary, I mean, look, in Eastern Europe, they're a bit different, but, but he, uh, has instituted something where, you know, you get, if you have four children, you never pay income tax again. Which actually, you know oh. what? That might not be. <laughs> that's not, that's <laughs> not like specifically political, but yeah, the the he wants people to just have a lot of children. Um, yeah, wow. And I mean, in a weird way, that one might be something that people could. Yeah. That's not like a political thing where it's like you have to have children, but hey, you never pay tax again. The difference between three and four, that could be. Um, that would be <laughs> if I had three kids, that would push me to four. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that um, but it's it's a it's just a interesting and I don't know maybe I'm online too much, but um, it's just a very interesting time. I think the next ten to twenty years there will be some kind of cultural revolution, but it'll be something that it. I don't think it'll either be you know just like what things were in the 1950s, but it also won't be uh anything more progressive along that line because one i don't know how much more progressive you can get and two i think a lot of people are not are not inclined to you know they've been they're feeling like some of this is going too far and that sort of thing and could be a kind of scary backlash though because especially if you've got a lot of people who like we talked about in our last podcast who require escapism and are not happy with their, you know, it's, these are also economic issues, cost of living, people are not happy, people are not feeling fulfilled. Well, they either, uh, they, they either partake in a, in a backlash, in a kind of revolutionary type of sentiment, or they just become apathetic. So they no longer care. And I think there's a lot of people like that now who just don't care about whatever the new, um, whatever the new thing is that we have to abide by, right? So if it's, uh, maybe it's the Snow White thing or something like that, there'd be a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm just so sick of this, I don't even care anymore. Yeah, um, then, I feel like that'll be me. I mean, yeah, I'm a bit like that too. So uh, apathy can, can then lead to yeah. the people who do care a lot, you know, really taking look i just think we're we're living in very interesting times compared to our parents or our parents sort of inherited a world that their parents built after world war ii and then that world has generally been the same up until about now and like just with all the also just the like conflict going on um the continued military arms race and things like that something Something's got to give and a lot of trends are suggesting that, uh, well, millennials and Gen Z are going to live through some kind of big change of either culture, politics, the world, something. I think um, we're going to have a very different world in 30 to 40 years, but it's almost impossible to predict what that looks like. Yeah, that's, it's scary to think about it. in that time Remy will be our age. <laughs> doing oh, the yeah. podcast like us talking about it yeah Spooky. there you go yeah yeah what do you think i guess if i ask you like do you think there's an inherent do you think teenagers are inherently rebellious in the sense that you know whatever they're taught is the norm or what they should believe they're just gonna stick the finger up and think no i'll do what i want and uh, you know, biologically that might have been the time where they're trying to gain their independence and get away from the tribe. Or do you think they're rebellious one way exclusively? So they'll always tend to be more, you know, inclined in the, towards their base instincts because they're still teenagers. So they'll want to, you know, have sex and drink and do drugs or, do you ever foresee a time where because that's so normalized, those sorts of things like sex positivity and casual casual sex, drug taking, that they'll actually rebel and, and say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be. That's a thing. It's already <laughs> happening. Yeah, is, I yeah. see. Yeah, I see kids talking about that um, and saying like I don't want to be a part of this or like this is not the culture I want to participate in, et cetera. So it is interesting that they want to, 
I feel like it's not so much about they'll rebel against whatever they've been taught currently or whatever's trending, but I think it's a innate um, primitive urge to develop their sense of individuality and it starts from around the age of like seven where they get their sense of self and identity and then as once they reach teenagers or adolescence, they really want to be like, okay, now I understand myself or believe I understand myself now. I want to enact that sense of self, whether it be like, okay, this is me, now I am of this party or I am trans or I am gay or I am incel or I am sex positive, anything. They're like, that. (laughs) that is my personality and really like emphasizing that. I think it's a... Um, it's funny how it's like I find with teenagers that I work with is they pick what like I would consider to be like one aspect of my personality and then they make it like really inflated and make that their whole thing and I remember like when I was a teenager like it was all about like I was like okay like I'm a compassionate person or empathetic person so that became like my whole like identity was about how compassionate I would take fucking anyone in off the street. I was always talking to homeless people. I volunteered thousands of hours with disability kids, uh, old people, children, everything. Um, and then when I was, it wasn't until I was a bit older, I was like, well, I can be more than just <laughs> like hmm. that. Fuck, I'm tired. <laughs> let me rest um but and like that's a positive one like people are like i'm really into weed so then they commit it they're stoners um or skateboarding or surfing yeah they obsess over one thing they just like pick something what did i was yours just like i I think it was i think that was my major focus then and yeah I'm, i'm funny and i'm a comedian that was uh and it still is (laughs) <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not not as much now. Yeah. But um, I think that would have been, yeah, yeah. If I were to describe myself, if I was a teenager again, and someone asked me how would you describe yourself, I would say, yeah, funny would be a part of it. I think, yeah, and cr- maybe create. Oh. Not so much creative. I don't know. Funny and smart, I'd say. Yeah. It hasn't really changed. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's probably still, that's still how I would describe, describe you. <laughs> what are yeah. the best qualities? Oh, oh, I think I'm smart and I think I'm funny. <laughs> uh, Those yeah. are great qualities. Yeah, you're right. Though, that, yeah, you just amplify what that one thing that you feel is yeah. intrinsic to your sense of self. And then, yeah. and then you start to maybe diversify that as you get older. Yeah. Or sometimes it's like, um, like I'm tough and then yeah. they become a bully or violent or they go into the military and like it's, yeah, it's so fascinating how it's like what you inflate can be such a uh, indication of your future but not necessarily like Adrian was stoner when he was a, when he was a teenager and that he doesn't, ne- he never goes near anything now because he hates it. Um, but And I don't think that was a fundamental part of his story. He was like, I was just, this is just what I did. <laughs> like that was it. And then I dropped out of school yeah, and yeah. got into trade. Yeah. Interesting. That's his villain story. Yeah. Yeah, or being the party. Yeah, maybe late teens, early 20s, are you the party yeah. person? Or, yeah, yeah. Uh, what I, yeah, that part of our identity is so central mm. and probably determines the course of our life in a way. Mm. Mm. It's also a very Western thing, though, that sense of individual identity. That's not necessarily yeah. something that yeah. you, you really get in other cultures, although that might be changing. Well, also mm. it might be changing in Western cultures as well because it's like um, I saw a video um, on TikTok and it was like why it was by an Australian teenager and she was like why I wish I was American and it showed like parties with red cups and pool parties and holidays at the beach and like going to like the cafe, like Starbucks after school and all the Americans are like, we don't do this shit anymore. Like you can do that here. What do you do? Yeah. You can do all those things here. Like it's not a culture anywhere. We just go home and go on the internet. Like it's not even a thing anymore. It's like that time to explore and develop your identity. I'm so glad that I got to like go through that at at that age. Um, But it's no longer 
that much of a thing where it's like you go to a party every weekend or you at the park every afternoon with a bunch of people or you're at the mall constantly like yeah they still do it but ne- not to the same extent no, that we did at our age no they're all online yeah, yeah. Mm. scary all right well i hope i didn't depress you with all that yeah <laughs> existentialism yeah they have a crisis later yeah. Um, let us know in the comments your thoughts and then yeah look I a lot of those statistics I was just sort of recollecting from things I'd seen online so by all means if I got any of that wrong let us know in the comments um yeah thanks for listening everyone see you next week see you next week hope you enjoyed winter I think by the time this comes out it'll be spring that's nice (laughs) all right bye guys